0: You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It's me, Bart Campolo. That's right, and this is Humanize Me. If if you're listening to Humanize Me and you meant to be on an airplane to St. Petersburg, Florida... You're on the wrong plane and you're on the wrong podcast. Um, Listen, if I sound like I'm in a hurry right now, it's only because I am. Uh, There is so much happening in the world of humanize me right now that I can barely keep up. Um, People, all of a sudden, everybody that I've been trying to get for an interview is like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it right now. And so I'm doing interviews left and right that will show up on this podcast soon. I'm doing the extra series on, you know, kind of starting a secular humanist community from scratch which some of you are really interested in and we're getting great feedback on that and do i sound like do i sound like a self-promoting used car salesman i am sorry like the other thing is i'm overwhelmed with people that are just going through a lot of stuff there's a lot of people out there going through a lot of stuff my college students at usc uh the people that i'm doing the counseling and the coaching with um and just The world is having a hard time right now and any of us, and it should be all of us that sort of care about other people that feel like our destiny is wrapped up. Our well-being is wrapped up in the well-being of the people around us. We're all busy these days trying to take care of each other and so that's okay. But long and short of it is I got a lot going on right now. We've got a lot going on right now. And I also don't want to take too much time to talk to you because this interview that I'm gonna that you're gonna hear—it's not an interview; it's a conversation—is with a guy, Michael Dowd, who I have known about for 20 years, but never talked to. I totally misunderstood the title of his original book, "Thank God for Evolution," and I totally didn't know why he was in the world until I arranged this conversation. And you're going to hear it in the podcast. I had never spoken to him before this podcast starts. And by the end of it, you can tell, like, he's my new buddy. And there's a real connection. I think you'll, many of you will really connect with him. Especially those of you that, like me, are convinced that we're on the precipice of a really tough time in which we're really going to have to be good at loving each other and building community and caring for the needs of those who are hurting. So... Without further ado, this is my interview with Michael Dowd. I will be back on the other side of the podcast. I have, yes, I will have an Ingersoll reading for you. So I will catch you on the other side of the podcast. Do not go away. Here's Michael Dowd and me. Rock on. Okay, so like, let me just start out by telling you that the reason I'm so happy to be talking to you is because in most conversations, I am the happy Collapsarian who's predicting <laughs> the imminent social collapse and everyone's going like oh my gosh you're so out there you're so like you've been watching too many Michael Reppert movies and, and like you know you're a freak and and this is the first time when I'm picking up the conversation where I'm guaranteed
0: that you are more breathless than me <laughs> Okay. Well, I, I yeah, breathless. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely call myself an apocalyptimist. Uh, I know. I love that phrase. I yeah. love that phrase. Well, I okay. wish I could claim it, but I got it from a 35 year old uh, woman in uh, Australia. Yeah. And 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 you, I
1: mean, the interesting thing is because, you know, I like what other people are interested in about me. Is this whole like oh he was this evangelical Christian leader and then he lost his faith and he's now a secular humanist and how is his father handling all of that and all that? That's what other people are interested right, of in. Of course, of course. But what people don't realize is is that one of the big moments for me was when I and it really was after I saw Michael Reppert's movie that that uh, collapsed. Yeah, that's great. It was when I got turned on to like peak oil yeah. and fiat currency. Yep. And climate change, yep. and um, pandemic flu, and I just realized, like, I don't know which domino is going to fall first.
0: <laughs> Probably but the financial one.
1: <laughs> but we're headed, you know, and it almost fell in two thousand and eight. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, when I read, um, I read this book called Thirteen Bankers, which was kind of about how close we came in two thousand and eight to our currency collapsing, which would have collapsed currencies all over the world. Yeah, right. And, and so, you know, like my favorite TV show over the last few years was The Walking Dead. Um, not because I believe in zombies, but because it is a pretty interesting portrayal of a world in which governments cease to function and technology ceases to connect people and all economies become local. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't watched TV in 38 years, so I, I'm sort of out of that loop. Um, <laughs> uh, seriously, if, if I've watched one TV program a year in the last 38 years, it's been a lot. Uh, I, I was staying at somebody's house. There's a woman who's a UCC minister, United Church of Christ, out in uh, Spokane, Washington, and her husband's a minister, too. And... Um, they, I just Connie and I happened to be staying at their house during the week that the uh, um, the World Series was playing, with the Chicago Cubs. So I watched, I watched like five of the seven games uh, on the big screen TV, and uh, it was quite a, a, a cultural event, of course. But if, for me, having not watched TV hardly ever in the last thirty eight years, the commercials, it was like the commercials were grabbing me by the throat and shaking me around. It was like, yeah, you know, no, I, I would not, sometimes you know. leap for the uh for the the control to mute the commercials
1: so but i mean the, the the interesting thing is and and if you you know you maybe you've read comac mccarthy's the road or any of these you know i don't know if or or any of bill mckibben stuff or that you know a world made by him but there's a lot of stuff in the zeitgeist right now that is imagining this post-apocalyptic reality where where all of a sudden, all these structures are gone. And and I don't think that it's I always say to people, I don't think it's going to be as bad as that, but I think it's going to be a lot worse than the Great Depression.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, so because this is the kind of thing you love to talk about, and I'm imagining that the people watching or listening to this are going to be keyed into that, too. Otherwise, they wouldn't be following you. Um My, my. Oh, no, 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 no. no I keep this stuff way under wraps. Oh, I see. I see. OK, well, I don't I, talk about it a lot. <laughs> Uh, Okay. Well, just to give you a sense of sort of who my closest friends and colleagues in this movement are, I would say it would be Jim Kunstler, James Howard Kunstler, John Michael Greer. Um, In fact, I've read 12 of John Michael Greer's books in the last uh, three years. I've recorded five of them. In fact, I just recorded his latest, which is called Dark Age America, Climate Change, Cultural Collapse, and the Hard Future Ahead. It's about what we can expect in North America in the next 500 years. He doesn't take a look at the rest of the world. He doesn't take a look at beyond 500 years, but he's saying, okay, given what we know about paleoclimatic data and the rise and fall of civilizations, um, here's what we can reasonably expect in North America in the next 500 years. And it is so believable, and so it, it avoids the the How two delusions. Any...
1: Okay, no, go ahead.
0: Go no, ahead. It, it avoids the two delusions that I think most Americans are in, which is either the myth of perpetual progress, or the myth of the apocalypse. It's those are the two least likely options. And so, um, having a realistically hopeful way, and I say hopeful, not in any kind of Pollyanna or otherworldly sense, but just in the sense of facing the reality of the great reckoning, we've been out of right relationship to reality, whether you use secular or religious names for that, and there's now consequences um, that are unavoidable no matter what we do, Um, and yet how to stay present to that, and ultimately come through it to be an act of hope, to be to be in action locally uh, in a way that makes a difference and, and basically living a great life and having healthy relationships and dying a peaceful death and leaving a sweet legacy. I mean, what, what more could you ask for? And yet you don't have to be in denial. You could ask
1: of these... for eternal bliss in well. utopia. That's what more you could ask for. Yeah, well, you
0: and I aren't there. We haven't been there for a long time. Well, I haven't been there for a long time. It's been more recent a shift for you, perhaps.
1: You know, what's, what's, and what's interesting for me is... Is when you talk about that, living a good life mm-hmm. and having a good death, I, I spend a lot of time on community building. That's my big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know you' you're sort of this prophetic guy who's perpetually on tour with his wife, you know, talking to people about the future. but but I stay in one place and try to build a community and yeah. but it's it's the same. The same motivation is that I'm pretty convinced that a lot of people are going to be thrown into the water and there aren't very many lifeboats for them to climb into. Mm -hmm. And that some of the lifeboats that people would have normally gone to in crisis, they won't be able to go to in this crisis because because they're built around narratives that those people can't believe. And so I'm trying to build sort of this way that people can be together and generate hope and raise their kids with collective values and all that stuff that doesn't depend on actually believing in the factual truth of these myths that, 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 that a lot of people believe in, in a very factual way. Um, and so secular community building for me is really just sort of preparation Yeah. For what I think is going to be a really difficult transition. But when I hear you talk about somebody predicting 500 years ahead, Mm -hmm. I just sort of like when I think about all the technological changes and all the social changes that have happened in the last 50 years, I just like who really thinks they can predict 500 years
0: ahead? I would be shocked. I would be shocked if you read Dark Age America and you didn't agree with 95% of it. See, the thing is, most people, secular and religious alike, are clueless about primary reality, namely energy in the biosphere. And there's a lot of things that we can say really confidently are going to be the case or likely to be the case in the next 500 years with regards to energy. For example, the kinds of technology that we've been so used to with cheap, abundant, concentrated energy, many of those are going to go bye-bye as we shift, downshift over a course of many, many decades to um, more diffuse forms of energy energy. We can't maintain the kind of wasteful industrial lifestyles and the kind of techno utopian vision of this technology is going to save our ass. There's just no way. So I think there's no, no,
1: no. When you say that, when you say that, uh I sort of go like, okay, I just read this book a couple, a year ago called the beginning of infinity by a guy named David Deutsch and David Deutsch is kind of like,
0: do you know this book? Uh, No, I know David Deutsch and I, David Deutsch is clueless with regards to energy.
1: Okay, so that's the point. It's like, he's a techno-optimist in the sense of saying, listen, it's only been in the last 300 years that we've generated knowledge, new knowledge in a very sort of regular and predictable way. Or not predictable, but in a regular kind of intentional way. Mm -hmm. We used to just stumble on things. Now we actually have research universities that create knowledge. Mm -hmm. And he's just very confident that as bad as the problems that we generate are, that it, that you know and, he, and and he has a whole list of things where people were like this will surely kill us all and then we figured our way out of them right like and the what green, he, Revol- right, green revolution what is the re- green the
0: green revolution just extended overshoot the green revolution is not a revolution at all the green revolution is just guarantees that more billions of people are going to die than they would have uh, the fu- the, I, the, I consider the most important book I've ever read in my life. I mean, nothing else is really quite even close to it. And Connie, my wife, who's a science writer, uh, she's written four acclaimed science books. She agrees that this is the most important book she's ever read. And the two of us are very different. And it's called Overshoot by William Catton. It was written in 1980. Many people consider it the most important book of the 20th century, Overshoot, the ecological basis of revolutionary change. And when you understand overshoot, you realize that the Green Revolution actually is just going to make it that much worse in terms of once we no longer have the cheap, concentrated energy, and, it, and energy really is primary. I mean, the, the field of biophysical economics or ecological economics makes irrelevant almost all of the conversation that's happening around this techno optimist and, and that's that's really techno clueless around energy, primary energy yeah, so.
1: I mean that's the whole peak that i mean in the sense the idea is if i if, if I'm guessing is the idea is is the the energy sources that we've used oil oil is really concentrated solar energy yeah. that has been amassing and, and that, that amass over millions of years, <laughs> and we're burning millions of years worth of concentrated energy in like you know, a few decades
0: and there's just no way to replace it once we there's right, we're done. Right. I mean, every planet has a limited store of concentrated, dense energy. And once you've gone through it, you're back. I mean, if you look at the last 10,000 years and then the next 10,000 years, you know, it's like you've got the last 10,000 years and then the fossil fuel era and then the next 10,000 years, we're going to be back to human and animal muscle power and timber. Those are going to be our main sources of we're going to get some wind power, some so, some solar power. But when you look at uh, the kinds of fossil fuel energy that's required for even wind turbines and solar panels, you realize you know, we're not going to have hundreds of years. We'll have some decades of some good solar power and wind power, but we're basically going to be back within 100, 150 years to a forms of diffuse power that it, that powered humanity for the previous 99% of human history. Now that's, that's why if you don't, it's like if people don't get energy and if they don't get ecology, that's why I say ecology is the new theology. Ecology is the interdisciplinary science or sciences of right relationship to primary reality, whether you use secular or religious names for it. And that includes, the air, the water, the soil, and the life upon which we live. And if you don't get Ecology and energy. It's very easy. It's almost inevitable to get some kind of techno-optimism. I mean, even Michael Shermer. Connie and I just met together with Michael Shermer at Skeptic Magazine. He's been a friend and colleague for years. And we met with him in uh, at his home in, in Santa Barbara. And I was actually um, unprepared for how much of a magical faith-based view <laughs> Of, <laughs> of the economy and technology that he has. It was a shock. Um, and so there's very brilliant people that if they don't get biophysical economics, if they don't get overshoot, if they don't get the kind of thing that, in fact, anybody watching or listening to this, if there's only- There's no, no watching. There's no watching. I got rid of watching once Oh, good. Look. Okay. So this, I so this is audio. Okay. So anybody listening to this, if you only remember one thing f- from what I'm saying, I encourage you- to do whatever it takes to read The Long Descent by John Michael Greer and Dark Age America by John Michael Greer. Those two books, The Long Descent, which is his first major nonfiction book, and Dark Age America, which is his most recent nonfiction book. And, um, you know, uh, it's just... Getting this field of energy and biophysical economics, ecological economics, getting ecology as 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 our primary understanding of reality, it just sort of evaporates. In fact, my grace limits, but you can find all these books by the way, and my recording of them. I've recorded. Yeah, most yeah, yeah. Of them, this 100%. is the
1: craziest project for a guy who doesn't watch TV. <laughs> um, you, but like this shows me that you don't watch TV because you're reading all these books into a recording device. Yeah, my blue and then microphone. And then you're hoping that everybody will listen to them.
0: And uh, 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 yeah, um, it's not so much hoping. I, I don't whether people listen to them now or not. I don't know. I mean, there's nothing that we're going to do that's going to avoid hitting the wall. So I'm not trying to make such a difference so fast so that we can No, there are certain things that are inevitable. And so I'm grounded and I actually relax into what's inevitable such that. What I'm trying to do is plant the seeds of a healthy form, a healthy ecologically evolution-celebrating forms of religiosity so that on the other side... On the the
1: other side, on the other side. You're you're thinking about like what happens after the crash yeah. into the brick wall, like how do we rebuild a, or how do we not rebuild? How do we build a sustainable society
0: on the other side? Correct. A hundred to 400 years from now. In other words, how do we, there are certain things that are, that are now literally unavoidable. And one of them is these, the long descent as the title of John Michael Greer's book of industrial civilization. And it's not a collapse or, I mean, if, if, if it's a collapse in the way that Rome collapsed, which is, it took 325 years for Rome to collapse. And it was it was a stair step it was the long descent and so there were some partial recoveries that's the way we have 24 previous civilizations that we have evidence for and we've got great evidence for about 18 of them and they all become great and then their own greatness becomes their own undoing and so there's a lot of evidence that we have in terms of how politics unwinds how economies unwind and the kinds of ecological damage when you destroy the forests and you you know uh, uh destroy your soil and that sort of thing so that's what that's what greer's book is about that's what uh, William Catton's book Overshoot is about and it's you know i'm yeah my grace limits audios page if you just google grace limits audios i've recorded like a thousand hours of the 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 i call it sustainability scripture it's like the best of the best books and essays related to right relationship to reality primary reality
1: it's interesting i i was reading um i read about a british environmental activist who gave up a few years ago? Paul Kingsworth? is—is is he the guy who like decided that like from now on what he wants to do is enjoy the species, until you know that are like he just wants to enjoy nature and try to build like he's just sort of I guess what you would say relaxed into the inevitable and said like I'm going to stop trying to fight. You know, to to convince people that if we do this, that or the other thing, we can avoid the right. climate change problem. He said, what I want to spend my time on is trying to figure out how to enjoy the world as it is while we've got it and how to prepare for the world as it's going to be. Right. And, and the consequences have. Yeah,
0: I've got a number of his essays recorded on my Grace Limits audios page. What's his name? It's uh, Paul Kingsnorth. And um, uh, and it's the Dark Mountain Project. I mean, Connie and I are thoroughly on Dark Mountain. There's just no question. I mean, if the, the shortest shorthand in terms of people who align with us or who we feel aligned with, it's, it's like we'll ask, you know, I'll say, is he on Dark Mountain or is she on Dark Mountain? It's sort of a shorthand. The Dark Mountain Manifesto, I, I would be surprised if you don't agree with 100% of the Dark Mountain Manifesto. Um, and, and in fact, the two fa- my two favorite articles, uh, New York Times Magazine articles in the last several years, one was the feature article on you. The other one was the feature article on Paul Kingsnorth. The, ah. ti- the title of it was, It's the End of the World as We Know It and He Feels Fine. And it was an article on that's Paul the King's one. North and the, the Dark Mountain Project. And that's what was the introduction to us to the Dark Mountain Project. And you'll see on my Grace Limits Audios page, I have a number of articles and essays written by Paul King's North and his closest colleague in the Dark Mountain Project, uh, Dugald Hind. And uh, yeah, it's great stuff. It's just fabulous stuff.
1: Okay, so let me stop you for a second because I was so excited to talk to you because of all the stuff that I feel like a lot of people don't get that you get that I, f- I feel like I'm I'm kind of tuned into now I like David Deutsch and people like that the the techno optimists like it's tempting for me to believe that like there might be a way around this energy thing or we might figure something out so like I'm I, I I would say that I'm agnostic about the future the same way I'm agnostic about God in the sense of I don't know I can't prove for sure that it's going to be. That, that it's going to be the long descent. I have no evidence otherwise at this point, but like people like David Deutsch proclaim it and I go like, I guess you could be right. I guess we could come up with a scientific workaround. And so, but in the same way that I, I guess there, there, there could be a God who's hiding on the other, a, a personal God who's hiding on the other side of Venus who actually is going to save everybody. But I don't make any decisions based on that knowledge because I have no evidence of it. Mm-hmm. I live my life with the thought that the long descent is coming. Mm-hmm. Because although I can't prove definitively that that's what's going to happen, I don't know, I'm technically agnostic, I don't see any evidence of anything else. That's, that's what seems to me inevitable. So, I, so like you and I, I think in terms of the, the future that we see coming, and the optimism that we have that while we can't avoid those inevitable things, that we can do things that matter, and that we can do things that will make life better for young people and for the people yet to be born that we can we can make a difference. I think like you and I are both apocal- apocaloptimists on that level. Now yeah. here's where you and I disagree so viciously that like this is the second thing I wanted to ask you about is okay. why don't you take off that stinking collar and stop using all that confusing God talk language because I know what you mean by it but I don't think most people do
0: why do you use all the God stuff it's interesting Uh, uh, first of all the way that I'm using God now is the way that it's been used various mythic names what I'm referring to is primary reality in other words that which gave us birth that which sustains us and that which receives us when we die, the biosphere, let's just say the biosphere or the environment. We don't have a I-thou relationship to reality, to primary reality, Um, our source sustenance and end. We don't have a relationship, partly because of our language. When most people use the word God, G-O-D, they think of a supernatural being off the planet and outside the universe. And so theists believe in the existence of this supernatural being. Atheists disbelieve in the existence of the supernatural being. And it's almost as though they are in a race a neck-and-neck neck race to see who can have the most trivial, impotent, and inconsequential notion of God to either believe in or disbelieve, while well, the one real God, namely the biosphere, we're an out-of-right relationship to, and we're now about to experience consequences of biblical proportion. So I started spelling the word God, G-O-D-D-E, God, G-O-D-D-E, a lot of nuns, not a lot, but several nuns and pagans do that because it's the old English spelling, but I'm very clear what I mean. There's no, de- There's no debating. It's nothing you can believe in or disbelieve. God is reality with a personality, not a person outside reality. And we will either live in right relationship to inescapable reality, which of course includes the air, water, soil, and life upon which we depend, or we'll go extinct just like any other species. So I did a program.
1: uh, But like when you say God with a personality, you mean like a personality, like my guitar has a personality, like it has characteristics that make it distinct, but like it's not a person. It doesn't have feelings.
0: Right. I mean, I... Right. That's what you mean. If you don't understand, this is one of the things that I think many people who leave evangelicalism and fully embrace atheism, I I call it collective insanity in the sense of the, the debate, the debate between whether or not God exists. Both sides agree on a completely impotent, trivial notion of God. So, you know, you can't debate whether or not Uncle Sam exists and keep it a sane conversation. If you were to walk in a room and hear two people debating on whether or not Uncle Sam is real or whether or not Uncle Sam exists the first thing you'd get is they don't get personification. The very concept of personification, Uncle Sam is a personification, not a person. Uncle Sam is a personification of what's inescapably real, which is the U.S. government. As long as the U.S. government is solvent, that reality is real. And so, the reason that I use the word God, G-O-D-D-E, is because, first of all, it allows, I did a program where this this amazing, this guy who is a total atheist, it was a Unitarian church down in Austin, Texas, and he came prepared to just do battle with me. And and you can see, I mean, he was just like loaded for bear. And over the course of my presentation, I could see his face softening. And at the end, he, his was the first hand to raise, and he says, um, he, says, he says, I'll be honest with you, he said, I came ready to fight you he said but i found less and less i wanted to fight with except for one thing why even bother using the word god i mean if you mean reality just say reality why even bother using the word amen amen well let me tell you my response to him because it was well it's purely pragmatic three quarters actually it's like it's like uh something like 58 percent of the world's population are Christians and Muslims, and and more of them are on the conservative side than the liberal side. Now, I don't see the possibility in any real sense in the coming, say, 50, 70 years of two or three or four billion human beings stopping using the word God. But I do see the possibility of many millions, if not billions of people, what they mean when they use the word God is the biosphere with a personality, in other words, the environment. Even scientists talk about that the environment shapes us. We are molded by the environment. Creatures adapt to the environment. If we don't have an I-Thou relationship to the environment, nature with a capital N, then we're screwed. And so I use the word God simply because G-O-D-D-E will be, I mean, there's just no question when you understand the human brain, whatever happens on the other side of of the coming breakdown, 200 years from now, people are gonna be using the word God. There's just no question. So the question then becomes, what are they going to mean when they use it? And if they're meaning any God that merely transcends the universe is ridiculous, impotent and inconsequential compared to a God who transcends and includes the universe. So you don't believe in the universe or not. So I'm talking about the universe plus, not anything outside the universe. And from a purely pragmatic standpoint, I find that when I speak, for example, I I did a program. Wait, 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 wait,
1: wait. Yep. cuz before you give me that example. Okay. I I am a terrible interrupter,
0: but I, No, that's fine. I, that's right. I, I,
1: I people write to me on this podcast and they go like, "Man, will you just stop interrupting your stinking guests?" And so <laughs> Oh, I don't mind. Uh, it's okay. But 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 here's the thing that I, I find myself I find myself wondering. Mm-hmm. First of all, at the pace of social change that I've seen, mm-hmm. the very confident assertion that you have mm-hmm. that Fifty years from now, billions of people will continue to maintain that God language. Mm-hmm. It's got like, wow, that is a really confident prediction. That I don't know that twenty years ago I would have predicted that gay people would be able to get married in the United States under a Supreme Court ruling. Like I didn't like I knew that that would happen eventually, but boy, it happened a lot faster than I thought it would. There have been a lot of social changes that have happened a lot faster than I thought they would. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I sometimes wonder whether we're reaching a tipping point where like the number of people that are able to use that language or that choose to use that language may change really fast after not changing hardly at all for a long time.
0: Right. Yeah. I think what I would say in response is that you and I have radically different views of human history. I shared what I think is what I'm imagining probably is, is your view of history up until four years ago. But the last four years, I've, I've literally probably read you know, 2000 hours worth of books. Uh, and essays related to the rise and fall of civilizations and the rise in, uh, and, and human history, including uh, Toynbee and Spengler and the, you know, I mean, we're talking 10-volume series related to the rise and fall of civilizations. Sure. And one of the things that we find over and over again, for example, in the previous 24 civilizations that have become great over a period of two to 800 years and then declined over a period of one to three centuries, there is this, the, there are a, there's not an age of reason there are ages of reason. There's an eight every one of these civilizations or at least the 18 that we have a solid evidence for we there, there are times where you go from the mythic to the more rational to then the 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 sort of what we call postmodernism today, but where you, you start finding uh, 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 this this sense of um, the relativity of, of different models and metaphors and then there's a breakdown and then you go back to a very literalistic understanding of law and language and And so when I speak of that with a sense of confidence, or it even sounds arrogant uh, in terms of what will be 200 years from now or 50 years from now or 300 years from now, what I'm grounding that in is what I call evidential scripture. That is what history has been revealing for the last several thousand years that we've been studying history. And I interpret that as authoritative. I interpret that not as any authoritative in anything otherworldly, not in authoritative in the sense that it doesn't need to be discerned with our best rational tools and collectively discerned. But um, there's a lot that we have evidence for. And one of the things we have evidence of is that the religions don't make sense in the age of reason. So that's that's why we're seeing so much of religiosity now and why there's this uptick of, of humanism, of atheism, of free thinking, of skepticism, which is great. It's normal. It's healthy. It's it's essential. It's inevitable. It's really inevitable. What's also inevitable is 100 years from now, as we are now no longer in that, when we no longer have, if you think gay people are going to still be able to marry a hundred years from now, you're clueless historically expansion of in-group expansion of values happens during times of economic expansion. During times of economic contraction, when everybody's competing for a smaller smaller pie, a lot of that stuff goes by the boards. And one of the things that we stand to lose in the coming hundred years are many of the tremendous gains that we've made in terms of the progressive liberal values. And so one of the things I'm committed to is ensuring that as much of that as possible maintains, sustains, is passed. Don, and I, I don't. What forms I, I, of religiosity are? I, I hear you,
1: and 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 I don't I like. I'm genuinely intrigued. Where I'm thinking, he might be right, but then I sort of think, it's not that I think you might be. It's not that I'm sure you're wrong. It's that I think to myself, but isn't it different when we talk about what's happening on a finite planet before we reach the limit? And what happens on the other side of the limit. And and in particular, like it used to be that in every one of those social rises and collapses and returns to um, religiosity and uh, that cyclical nature, the smart people who figured out how to have a rational, how to have a reasonable approach to, to life, they didn't have the power to wipe out all the dumb people. But it. In, in the coming apocalypse, like right now, I think it's like one half of 1% of the world's population control something like 80 or 90% of the world's wealth. So like when, when times get rough right now, it may just be that the rich people decide we're just going to kill all the poor people. All, and we're and, and the smart people go we're gonna kill all the dumb people and they won't be able to stop us now in, in all those other things in all those other cases there was simple, the technology did not exist for one group to impose its will on the other group in that kind of absolute
0: fashion unfortunately you're speaking from ignorance uh, Bart that's just not the case <laughs> when we look at the Mayan uh, uh, civilization when we look at Rome when we look at Greece when we look at the various Chinese dynasties when we look at Egypt there are, uh, the same the same dynamics, sure, we have different technology now, no question, but the same exact dynamics. This is what John Michael Greer gets to in spades when he talks about the political unraveling and the suicide of science and the, the senility of the elites. I mean, he brings these patterns and says, okay, if... If we go through a similar process in the next several hundred years in North America uh, that all these other civilizations have done, and we have no evidence that, we, that we're not, in fact, we've got four decades now of evidence that we're already in catabolic collapse and Trump is right on schedule. This is what anybody who gets history is not only not surprised at Trump, it's like, oh, yeah, right on schedule. We've been expecting you. Um, when you understand that, you realize that the, the elite, the powerful often end up as lampposts or lamppost decorations, they cannot control, and they will not be able to control the masses indefinitely. They will do so for a time, no question. Um, but we are seeing the unraveling. It, it's a, it's it's very interesting. What I'd love to do, if you're interested, and obviously there's no obligation, but if you're interested, I would love to have a conversation with you post uh Oh, you want me to desc- read the, the descent? If you read the you. Long Descent and Dark Age America, I'd love to have a conversation with you. Where all we talk about are the issues that are raised from those two books. I'll reread them both again because uh, I've I've recorded the audio of both of them, so that's easy for me to do. Um, but in any case,
1: uh, you know, a gauntlet has been thrown down. Yeah,
0: but but I I want to say this, and this is important. What you're doing, the work you're doing, is so vital that I don't want it to get lost. Where we differ on some of the this God talk or not God talk or the usefulness of it, and you know what we can know or not know or what's inevitable or not inevitable in the next several decades or centuries, all that's irrelevant. I consider the most important work on the planet, the work you're doing, which is helping people to come back home to local community, local relationships, have the healthiest relationships possible with the air, water, soil and life and the people of your region, your, your local community and, um, and use the various social tools to have the healthiest relationships possible in that context. So I don't want that to get lost in where we do you, differ. Do
1: you know, do you know why I, it's interesting that you should say that? Cause why I do it is because when I first came into this sort of fear of the future or like the sense of the impending collapse, where I, I remember having a conversation with my son. And he was like, well, you know, what if you're wrong? And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of loving relationships and this kind of connection and this way of approaching other people, mm-hmm. it's even right – like pre-collapse, there's already a lot of alienated people out there. There's already a lot of sad people out there. There's already a lot of hurt out there. So, even if I'm wrong, this is still just the better way of life. Exactly. Community and exactly. love and, 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 and seeking, making meaning in this life as if it's the only one you have because it's the only one you probably have. Like, even if I'm completely wrong, this is still the best way of life. So, it's sort of Absolutely. like a lifeboat that doubles as a yacht. You know, like it's, it's the best way to live, whether we're, whether the Titanic is going down or not.
0: The lifeboat that doubles as a yacht. That's kick-ass. I love it. I, uh, I really do. In fact, uh, your comment about, uh, about, uh. Uh, the Titanic is a good one. Let me let me just very quickly, because I w- just last week or two weeks ago, I guess, uh, in Santa Barbara, we got together with one of my intellectual mentors, William Ofels. I've recorded three of his books that you'll find on the Grace Limits page. And um, he, uh, he lives in Santa Barbara. He's like 80 years old. And uh, he was writing about sort of the, in fact, his first book is called Ecology and the Politics of Scarcity. I wrote it back in the the early seventies, but I use this quote in my evening programs because I think it just nails uh, sort of where we are. Here it is. Sustainability, as usually understood, is an oxymoron. Industrial man has used the found wealth of the new world and the stocks of fossil hydrocarbons to create an anti-ecological Titanic. Making the deck chairs recyclable, voting them red or blue, feeding the boilers with biofuels, and every other attempt to transform or green the Titanic will ultimately fail. In the end, the ship is doomed by the unbreakable laws of thermodynamics and by implacable biological and geological limits that are already beginning to bite. We shall soon be obliged to trade in the Titanic for a schooner. In other words, a post industrial future that however technologically sophisticated resembles the pre industrial past in many important respects.
1: A lifeboat that may or may that may or may not be as
0: Comfortable as a yacht. Well, yeah, and it certainly as soulful as as to use religious language. Right, it's a right. soul nourishing, um, uh, especially when that lifeboat helps us also have a more intimate personal relationship to primary reality. That is the nature and one another. Who are part of nature like we're not in nature we are nature yeah, we're the universe becoming conscious of itself we're nature uncovering its own nature and that sense of identity that sense of deep intimacy with Uh, I mean, you and I wouldn't have this conversation if it weren't for the bacteria inside of us doing what they need to do. We don't exist without them. And the idea that we can fly off to some heaven somewhere without the bacteria in us is crazy. And that's why I I rejected. It's interesting. I went from a supernaturalist to being a naturalist almost overnight. How old Um, were you when that happened? I was. Let's see. It would have been 1988. So however old. Well, I would have been 30 um, because I was born in 58. So. I I was introduced to Thomas Berry and Brian Swim and the whole universe story at that time. And I really I I came to accept the history of everyone and everything that science gives us, which is called big history or the universe story or the epic of evolution as my sacred story. It's the first and only globally produced evidence based creation story. And I think I went from being a supernaturalist to being a, a Christian naturalist where I completely I don't have any other worldly or supernatural beliefs. And I interpret all mythic language as saying something. Metaphorical about this one reality in which we live and move and have our being, and, and that happened in the late 1980s.
1: So, so I mean, I got turned onto that phrase "naturalist" by Ursula Goodenough. Um, somebody had me read the Sacred Depths of Nature, which mm-hmm. is probably one of the, when I counsel people that are coming out of Christianity and that sort of need a new framework, mm-hmm. a new a new big story, a new cosmos to to, to, to to back up their ethos. She's been very helpful, but what's interesting. Uh, So I love that phrase religious naturalist. Mm -hmm. But here's the interesting when you call yourself a Christian
0: naturalist, I'm starting to get I only I only do that when I'm in Christian context. When I'm in Unitarian churches, I simply call myself a religious naturalist. Or I I really like the word sacred realism. So I'm a sacred realist for me. Evidence. uh, Here's my creed in a nutshell. And you may have heard this if you've watched anything of mine. But reality is my God. Evidence is my scripture. Big history is my creation story. Ecology is my theology, integrity is my spiritual path, and fostering a just and healthy future is my mission. And that's, that's really the essence of my worldview. Stop right there. Say it again. Okay. Say it slowly. Reality is my God. And what I mean by that is, is what's inescapably real that's revealed through evidence is, is my first commitment. That's my primary commitment. So reality is my God. Evidence is my scripture. That is, evidence is the main way reality reveals itself. Evidence is our best map of reality. Um, And of course, evidence needs to be interpreted collectively. So I trust that process. So reality is my God, evidence is my scripture. And what I mean by evidence is scientific evidence, historic evidence, cross cultural evidence, and uh, the subjective, the, the experience of objective nature, exactly. Yeah. So experiential. evidence. So all of that. So reality is my God. Evidence is my scripture. Big history is my creation story. Big history, meaning the epic of evolution or the universe story. Connie's in my main website is thegreatstory.org. And what we mean by the great story is it's just the story that includes all other stories. It's, it's physical evolution, biological evolution, and cultural evolution as our first and only globally produced evidence-based creation story. So. Reality is my God, Evidence is my scripture, Big History is my creation story, Ecology is my theology. Meaning the the interdisciplinary sciences of of uh, right relationship to time and nature, which is what ecology is. That's my theology. That is that's my that's that's how I best understand my relationship to reality and the healthiest forms of that relationship to reality. So reality is my God. Evidence is my scripture. Big history is my creation story. Ecology is my theology. Integrity is my spirituality. And what I mean by integrity are the practices and exercises that help me live in right relationship to reality. And then finally, fostering a just and healthy future is my mission. So that's, and, and I consider those, I've, I've been testing out those, those memes in literally probably about 140, 50 to 175 different audiences from atheists to evangelicals over the course of the last four years, which is when I formulated those. Yeah. And I suggest that those six points Unite tens of millions of secular and religious people around the world. Now, secular people won't use the word God. They'll say reality is my ultimate commitment. Evidence is the way reality reveals itself, and so on. And what I've found is conservative religious people feel much more comfortable worded something like this: My God includes reality. My scripture includes evidence. My theology includes ecology, and so on. But that okay. basic that, that that basic sense of commitment to the future and commitment to living in right relationship to primary reality the air, which includes the air, water, soil, and the life upon which we depend is, is fundamental.
1: All right. Now you, before we had this conversation, you sent me a note saying like, Hey, will you listen to a few of these things? And in your own brutally honest yet, yet winsome and, and, and kind way, give me some feedback and I'm going to give you some feedback. Great. Um, as, first as, first as, of all, as, as, what is it
0: that, what is it that you're referring to that I asked you to watch or read?
1: You, you asked me to watch or read this present, like this kind of presentation you gave to some evening. It was a Unitarian Universalist church. Okay. Um, uh, I think it was like, like this, this sermon you've given a lot of places. Oh, I know. About, okay.
0: Yeah. You were asking about a stump sermon. Yeah. this was, So this would have been the right. sermon I delivered at the Wigby Island. I think it was called yes, 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 prophetic was inspiration for challenging times or something like that. And right. it was great. And so here's here, you know, and
1: and you said like, cause I, cause you know, you've been hanging with my dad, you hang with my dad in the old days. I know he wrote a blurb for one of your books. And so, you know, kind
0: of the Campolo way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was Ron so, Sider's assistant for, for about a year. Wow.
1: Okay. So, so yeah. It's so we seminary. have some, so we have some, some, some history together, some shared people. Mm-hmm. Here's the deal. I'm listening to you as a preacher, and in particular, I'm listening to you as a preacher who spends most of his time with college students. And my biggest critique was very simple: slow down.
0: I I received that commitment. I mean, I, I I'll receive that and, rebuke
1: and and slow down and say less. Yeah. Less is more. Because what you are saying is, to my mind maybe the most important message that we realists have Mm. and that is that you want to get into a right relationship with reality i always say you want to get in right relationship with the reality of your own impending death like like it it is a tremendously joyful thing when you start to live your life in right relationship with death because it has a, it has a way of making every moment much more precious but i want i want to do to tell you two things and and this is like i i'll cut this out of the podcast you know no, no
0: please leave it but here, here's
1: what i'm telling you is like you gotta slow down like when you ticked off those six things mm-hmm. if tony campolo were ticking them off he would have said them slowly and he would have left A pause in between each one to let it sink in because each one of those things is so self verifying, if you will. Yeah, that if you just would give it a second before you move me on to the next one, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it would become a foundation for the next one. Yeah, but instead, I'm trying to remember everything you said,
0: right?
1: And so that's the first thing. Okay, the second thing is when I say say less, it's People can only take in so much in one sitting. Mm -hmm. And so if you give them five truths, they walk away with none. Mm -hmm. But if you give them one truth and an application, Mm -hmm. they'll come back for the next one. And so, and, and and I feel guilty, like you're a fabulous communicator and you're out there and you're getting responses and people responding. So I'm not like, I feel bad saying this, but I'm just saying like, as good as you are, I, I'm convinced you could be better. But, and I have a third point. The okay. first thing is slow down. Mm-hmm. Second thing is say less. Yep. In each talk, and the third thing is, why the hell are you talking to so many Unitarian Universalist churches of old people, when there are college campuses everywhere of young people who are who are in a much better position to receive what you're saying and then make decisions on the basis of it. Why don't we get you on college? Why are you not? I mean, you're not getting paid very much money at any of this stuff anyway. You guys are living out of a van doing it because you believe in the future. Mm-hmm. So, like, why aren't you being like a street preacher on a college campus? Because you would kick that out of the ballpark.
0: Kick it out of the ballpark is an interesting mixed metaphor. But, yeah, let me take these one at a time. First, well, play,
1: we play f- kickball. Oh, we play okay. kick, so, know, first kick. of all,
0: I I cannot possibly... Uh, communicate I don't think how grateful I am for those three points in the way that you just made them I agree with all three of them Um, for me to slow down and emphasize points and say less in that process is likely to have me be much more effective in the long run and even in the short run and what I sometimes have done is is relied on whoever my listener is in this case, because you and I are having a conversation, you said, hey, wait, 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 slow down, say those one again, you know, again. Um, so I, I receive your feedback willingly, wholeheartedly, joyfully, um, and, and, and more than that, I'm committed to acting on it in a way that makes a difference in presentations that I do next week, for example with respect to why am i speaking in liberal christian and unitarian universalist churches most of whom the audiences are over 50 rather than speaking more on college campuses the main way that we support ourselves and have done so for 15 years is that we seven, eight, nine months ahead of when we, because we, we live out of the generosity of people who open up their homes to us. So we don't actually live out of our van. Um, we, our van is not an RV. It's just a Dodge sprinter with a queen sized bed built into it. So we never stay at hotels and motels. And, but we also don't live in the van. So we're always living in people's homes. So for the first seven years or eight years, every three to seven days, we were in somebody else's home occupying their guest bedroom, guest room or the sharing guest their house. And, and they yeah. and they were there with us. And we were there for a week or less then I was diagnosed with cancer and went through six rounds of chemotherapy and had my spleen removed uh, uh, seven years ago uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And I could not possibly agree more with your statement about mortality and death earlier because I have not lost since then the sense of how precious life is. Uh, Connie and I have a tremendously sacred relationship to death and mortality. Neither one of us have anything otherworldly, and yet we hold mortality and death in a truly Sacred, holy way. And by doing that, by knowing, in fact, one of our little games, one of our little rituals is that we are soon going to be everlastingly dead, just as everlastingly dead as every other person who has a gravestone in any graveyard that we visit. And so by thinking of that, by reminding myself of my mortality, I know I have one life to, to leave a legacy, to make a difference. And there's something for me very precious and I haven't lost it since I was diagnosed with cancer and went through the chemotherapy and I've had three CAT scans. I don't have any anymore but i haven't lost that um that sense that my life is so short i will soon be dead and in fact today is what two days after the equinox two nights ago connie and i went up onto the roof here uh, we were one block off the beach in oxnard and we held each other we looked out at the sunset And we do as we do every single, this is one of our rituals. It's a seasonal ritual. We do it religiously every season. At the end of the season, we say, as we did, thank you, winter. Thank you for being such a blessing. If one or both of us don't get a chance to experience you again, we just cherish. What a blessing, what a gift you've been. And then we're silent. And we actually contemplate that one or both of us dies before the next winter comes around. And so, and, and by contemplating that in a very real way, it, 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 it it's, it's, it's transformative. It allows me to live my life fully, to love the life I live, and to do what I can to leave the biggest legacy that I can. And so that death, so at any rate, so let me finish the story. So but that what that did, though is it allowed us to slow down. We realized that we had had, we had been doing this for eight years, nine years, and we now have a state by state file of people who have offered us their second home or their vacation home. So now three quarters of the year, we're in somebody's home without them there. We've got the home to to ourselves and we're not there for three to seven days. We're there for three to seven weeks. So it's a much slower pace. We have the lifestyle of the mega wealthy because we're living in these amazing places, and yet we don't have any of the upkeep, none of the responsibility, and yet that allows us to live very simply. We have we have very few expenses, so we can we don't have to have a large income. And But the main way we've supported ourselves is selling books and DVDs at the end of our program. And whenever we, we have done, I've probably done 150, maybe 200, uh, college classrooms, university classrooms, various kinds of symposia things at, at colleges and universities. And college students, even when we do programs at universities, universities and colleges the um, uh, most students don't show up a lot of the faculty and, and that sort of thing do and students don't buy books they we just you know and and so because the, it's the it's really laziness, I think. Because the easy way for us to make a living and allow us to live this incredible lifestyle that gives us a lot of free time to do creative projects, like me to record thousand hour, two thousand, you know, fifteen hundred hours of books and stuff on grace limits and all this kind of stuff and video projects and audio projects. What allows us to do that? Is the little honorary a 200 dollars? Yeah, no, I get, get it. I get it. I know that. And world. then the selling, but but like if I if I do a church service on Sunday morning, so let's say two hundred people come to church, and then I offer a free evening program on Tuesday night. Like for example, this coming Sunday, I'm speaking at a Unitarian church on Sunday morning, both services, and then I'm doing a Tuesday evening program. We'll we'll have fifty people. We'll have fifty to eighty people show up for the evening program, and I'll sell a thousand dollars worth of books and DVDs. And it's not even just my books. I sell John Michael Greer's books, Richard Heinberg, as well as my own. Um, yeah. But that's no. Been,
1: it's the right strategy. It's just the, it's just yeah. But, but get, you're absolutely I want,
0: right. I, I have felt. I got
1: I got to get you to build into it. And, yes. and the thing is, you're right. If you show up to do a symposia at a college, students, they don't know you, they won't show right, up. Right. You've got to, when I used to speak at colleges, I would go to, when I was an evangelical, I would go to the Bible study. Right. Well, those kids are showing up. Right. Like, you know, and you say like, if you came to USC, you would come to the secular student fellowship. And I'd have 50 kids there who are are prone to listen
0: and so, so let's ha- let's let's offline let's further this conversation because we'll we'll
1: fi- i want to talk to you about that now i'm going to say one more thing online
0: okay well i, I just need more... to let you know i've got i've got four minutes and then i have to be on another call yeah i've
1: got only two minutes oh good okay good. no i'm kidding that's my mother <laughs> Whenever i tell her i have to go she's always like i have to go too oh okay. Well, um, yeah. so here's the last thing i'll say okay. and it's a perfect way to, ways to stop this is the last thing i'll say is you tell a good story when you tell a good story. And my dad would tell you that stories are the only thing people will really remember. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I listen to you speaking, you're, you're putting out such great ideas, Mm -hmm. but you've putting out so many of them. The reason I want you to say less is because I want you to attach stories to them because you're a good storyteller and you have stories to tell, but it's the stories that anchor the idea in people's
0: hearts and minds. And so that's my last piece of you're speaking straight to my heart, brother. And my wife would, would deeply appreciate you for it because she almost always asks me before I do a sermon. And, and the reason that I don't have a stump sermon is because I typically stand up on Sunday morning and just speak whatever there is to speak. And she almost always asks me, what story are you going to tell? Do you have any stories? And, and half the time I haven't thought right. about it and she's right. And you're right. And I want
1: to, like, I want to load you up with some emotionally resonant stories because I think you're speaking the truth. But the truth is not enough yeah, amen. when you're talking to human animals, yes, exactly. because they don't listen with their brains. Yeah. They listen with their hearts yeah. uh-huh. and you got to have stories. And I'm telling you this because, and I'm saying it on the, on the podcast, because there are a lot of other people out there that I'm asking to communicate yeah. Yeah. what the truth is about their life and the truth is about this world. Yeah. And I want them to understand the same thing I'm telling you. Yeah. Well, it's all it's about the stories. going straight
0: in brother. It's going straight in. Thank you.
1: This is beautiful. We'll talk again. I'll catch catch up to you. I'll I'll read those books and we'll have another one of these.
0: I look forward to it greatly. You're a good brother. Lessons on your
1: work. Talk to you later, baby. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was my interview with Michael Dowd. I hope you dug it. I dug it. You might have hated it, though. It was kind of extreme. And so if you hated it or loved it, either way, write to me at... BartCampola.org, go to that website. There's a place to contact me. I love to hear from y'all. One of the things I'm hearing is that we've got to get all the podcasts so that they're available for download easily. And we're working on that right now. Um, Yeah, so we'll be back next week with cool stuff. In between, we'll do some of those bonus episodes. But in the meantime, here are some words from the immortal Robert Ingersoll. How a man can perceive the inalterable succession of facts in nature and at the same time believe in a supernatural providence, is beyond my imagination. Nature is but an endless series of efficient causes. She cannot create, but she eternally transforms. There was no beginning, and there can be no end. Ooh, there you go. All right, listen, there can be no end in nature, but we all know there's going to be an end to each of us. And in many ways, I would say that that reality is what drives us to love each other. Talk to you later.
0: For more information about the work of Bar Campolo, please visit barcampolo.org.